listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. My guest today is also a fellow New Jersey person, which I love. And I know he's from Montclair, which is up north. I'm from originally from Cherry Hill, which is down south. And the difference is about 75 miles. And they say Taylor Ham, and we say Taylor Pork Roll. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, Google it. Anyway, we have a great show. My guest has a brand new album coming out. It's a live album. He's a uh, Tony winner. He's a Grammy winner. He's just a hell of a musician. And my guest is Duncan Sheik. How you doing, Duncan? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? Good. I always, I always like talking to New Jersey people just because, you know, I lived in L.A. for 18 years. And, and New Jersey always gets such a bad rap. And I know you're no, no longer in New Jersey, but it's actually a, a pretty, pretty, pretty state. Sure. I mean, it's an incredibly varied state. I, I, you know, to be honest, and this is not me disavowing it at all, I, I, I was born in New Jersey, and I mostly grew up in South Carolina. I did spend, I was in New Jersey during, when I was in second grade for one year, and then I went away to a boarding school when I was 12 up in New England. So I was sort of an East Coast vagabond, really. Now, I want to talk about your career, but I want to talk about the new live album, and it's uh, it looks great. I, I saw an article on you in the Huffington Post about it, and it's it's uh, live uh, from the Cafe Carlisle. How did you pick that place to record it? I know you had to get a week gig there, and did you plan to record it the whole time, or did you just get that vibe going? Yeah, no, I, I knew that... Um... I knew that I was obviously knew I was going to be playing there five nights in a row. And it's fairly unusual to do a, a residency like that where you can kind of park a proper kind of recording system there in the room and you can, you know, sort of make sure that over the course of five nights, you're going to cross your fingers and hopefully get good takes of the songs you want to put on the record. So um, it was just a, it was just sort of a, a nice opportunity to um, you know, to, to, to make sure that uh, whether you know that whether it was a good night or a bad night, you know, I was going to get something that was going to work on a live album. Now you said you had a residency there. Was it your first residency there? And did you have a strong familiar route, familiar Larry? I can't even say it. familiar. Or you're very familiar with the room. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when I was, uh, I went to Brown University, and I had uh, some some sort of fancy New York roommates when I was at school and we would one of them um, one of them their parents had an apartment in the Carlisle if you can believe it and lived there and so when we would go to New York City you know and this was like in the late 80s and early 90s um, I, I would end up like staying at the Carlisle in their apartment and uh, so so I had a familiarity with the place um, from from that time but I know I'd never played there before of course now when you decide to do a live album, and you said it was five nights, does it get you a little more nervous? I used to do stand-up comedy, and when I would do an audition tape, if I knew I was getting taped, I'd get a little more nervous. You know, you think, instead of just being relaxed and letting it flow, because you think, well, I'm taping it, it has to come out good. When you're yeah. performing, when you when you set up, did it does it get in your head at all that you're doing a live recording, even though you have five nights? Does it Does it do anything to you? Yeah, and, and in fact, I would say to the audience, you know, I may stop and start songs a couple times because we're recording this. So, you know, don't 
don't freak out if I, you know, if I play the beginning of, of Touch Me a few times. But I, in the end, I don't think I ended up having to do that at all. Um, uh, you know, I just I sort of knew, I sort of knew on any given performance of a song, like if this one was really working or not. And if it, if it had stopped working, I was just like, well, whatever, we've got another night to record it. <laughs> Now, did, were you going off the same set list each night? Was it something that you wanted to keep in order just to keep it cohesive? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it hewed pretty close to the same set of things. There were there was some divergence night to night, um, but but for the most part, the things that you hear on the record happened at least a few times over the course of that week. Yeah. Now. How did you build your set list for it? I mean, of course, you know, you know, people want to hear Barely Breathing, but you're probably like, oh, you know, it's like I interviewed Steve Forbert last week and he always has to sing, you know, Romeo's tune towards the end, you know, just because people are waiting for it. How do you set, formulate your set? Because, you know, once again, it's going to be a live recording and you want everyone in in the mood. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, the first um, consideration is just what do I feel like playing that night? Um, it's pretty selfish, but it's also... It also has to do with like what, you know, what is that room like? How big or small is the room? How many people are in there? What does the room sound like? What are the complement of musicians that I'm playing with? You know, in this case, it was uh, Doug Yole playing drums and Jason Hart playing piano and a variety of other keyboard instruments. And uh, I had Catherine Gallagher singing um, vocals on a few songs as well. Um, so it's, you know, so it's not a rock band and sometimes I do this kind of show with a string quartet but I didn't have a string quartet because there there's not really room there to, to put too many musicians to be honest so um, so you know it's kind of like what are what are the songs that I can do as as a trio um, and, and have them come off now you shot a video uh, for fake plastic trees how did you choose that song to play what uh, I mean, you know, as I was reading, you know, it's a cover, but you said you're not really a huge fan of covers. But how did you ever start getting that into your repertoire? Well, so, yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, I'm releasing a live album, but then they asked me to, to do these these kind of live video takes of these of the songs that are on the record. But that's not actually the version of the song you're going to hear on the record. So I just want to state that <laughs> for the record. Um, but yeah, Fake Plastic Trees is a song that I've been playing since I've, you know, since before I was signed to Atlantic Records, it was kind of like the only cover song I played for a long time. Um, I wasn't really, I was, you know, I still consider myself one of the world's worst campfire guitar players, singer-songwriters, because I have very, very, very few songs in my repertoire that are, you know, the, the usual standards of, of that, uh, of that oeuvre. But, um, but uh, but that's you know for some reason fake plastic trees is just a song I loved in you know in 1994 when it came out and it, in in a way it just it sort of got under my fingers really easily and it was a song I could sink my teeth into as a singer quite easily it has a really nice satisfying build to it um, and uh, yeah so that in a way that was like the only song I would cover for. Long time until I did my covers album, um, you know, in 2011. Tell me about your covers album because you know, I know Matthew Sweet did one with uh, uh, 
Suzanne Hoffs, uh, Steve Forbert just did one. Tell me about it, and how do you how do you choose? Because you know, as a, as a musician, you, you probably you have influences, and there's probably people you admire that are your influences. To put them all together, how tell me about the whole process because this kind of stuff fascinates me. Well, it, the covers album that I did, um, it, it was called Covers '80s, and uh, it was basically songs by bands and artists who were from the UK, um, who were kind of my big influences when I was a teenager. And they were, they tended to be sort of electronic music in whatever fashion, with the exception of the Smiths um, and sort of the Cure. Uh, but otherwise they were all bands that, that were very heavily, that heavily used drum machines and synthesizers. And the, and the concept behind it was to take those songs that were very, you know, uh, very electronic in their sonic palette and to reimagine them sort of using only acoustic instruments. Um, but, you know, not just guitars, but, you know, things like dulcimers and harmoniums and banjos and whatever else I had sort of lying around. Um, that, that was, you know, human hands playing a, a wooden instrument. Um, and so, uh, so that was just, it was just like a lot of fun deconstructing those, those songs that were, you know, sort of synth pop songs and, and kind of putting them in completely different clothing. Now, were you very happy with the, uh, the final product? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, it's interesting that covers album, I don't, you know, I think when it first came out, it was kind of a non-event, but over the past decade, it's, you know, people have kind of paid a lot of attention to it. And it's sort of, it just continually, it sort of pokes its head out there um, in, in, in some way or another or on YouTube or whatever. So uh, I'm really happy that it exists. Now, you said some of your influences and, you know, when you were in your teens or whatever, when did you start getting into music? When what was was your uh, was your household a musical household? What what brought you into the whole music genre? Uh, sort of. I mean, my my mom's mother, um, who was originally from Scotland, she was a a, a very good um, and very sort of dramatic uh, classical pianist who would play like Rachmaninoff and. She was like pretty intense um, personality and, and musician and artist, you know, she was a visual artist and a musician, really great woman. And so, you know, she, she was there and very encouraging of my musical pursuits. I got my first guitar when I was six. Um, and, uh, and around that time, my, my mom had a boyfriend who was a guitar player who gave me a copy of Yes, Fragile. You know, when I, I mean, this is like, 1977 1976 97 and i was young but i i was really into that record so i don't know there was something there was something about um the more adventurous subgenres of rock music that appealed to me even as a really young kid and that's you know i sort of have been listening to the same stuff ever since now when did you actually start putting it together and getting a band together and looking and saying you know what i'm, I'm pretty good at this and I, and I really dig it well, again, I mean, I, I was throughout um, throughout sort of elementary school, uh, I, I was playing guitar and I would like go over to a friend's house who was a drummer and we would just sort of jam. 
and I think by the time I was in sixth grade, I was I was in the like the sort of high school rock band. So everyone else was older than me, and we I mean literally we covered you know Def Leppard and Van Halen and Blondie. It was sort of like a, a smorgasbord of like uh, early '80s radio rock that you might have heard in South Carolina at the time. Um, but then I, when I went away to boarding school, um, I became a little more isolationist in terms of my process. And I, I started getting, I got my first four track recorder and my first drum machine and my first polyphonic synthesizer. And it was sort of about me in, you know, in my bedroom with this gear and my headphones on, um, making instrumental, uh, kind of alternative music for lack of a better word. Now, when did you uh, start partaking in writing the lyrics? Well, like I, I didn't really sing, or and certainly not write lyrics at all until I was nineteen. Like this was always a, again, it was just me sort of with my gear making this instrumental music, and then I, I did have a realization. I, I went on a trip to Mexico with some friends. It's my freshman year of Brown. And I, and I did sort of have this realization that like, you know, if I was going to have any kind of a career, um, I would sort of, you know, I would probably have to start singing, <laughs> you know, if I was going to make records that everyone's going to want to listen to, they might need a singer. Um, and I guess that person was going to be me. So I, I, I very, um, quietly and privately like started to sing on these recordings and I, I actually wrote this song that was about this trip to Mexico. There might have been some psychedelic substances involved, but I'm not saying. And uh, and then I, you know, and then that sort of began this process of of me again, very sort of quietly, sheepishly recording songs in the in the studio at Brown. Um, and and then you know, eventually, as I got better at it, I would let people listen to them. But they were still, you know, they were still just recordings. It took me a really long time to, to be able to get on stage and, and sing in public and have any um, any sense of, of sort of any comfort level at all with that. What was your major at Brown? Because I just remember when I, I went to high school, a guy I know, I remember he got a 1480 on his SATs and he was so smart. And he went up to Brown and I think he went for uh, computers and he just came back and saying, you know, I go with these really smart students and they make bongs out of everything. Yeah. It's unbelievable because they're really smart. Yeah. What What was your major? Uh, well, I majored in something called semiotics, which is, um, uh, you know, it's the study of signs and signifying systems, but it's really um, sort of modern culture and media. And it's it's it, it was something that I could major in where I could study a lot of things in a lot of disparate mediums and kind of put it together and call it a major. So, you know, I can study like 60s Italian cinema and make sort of Fisher-Price movies in the art studio and then be in the recording studio and make music there and study, you know, psychoanalysis and feminism and linguistics and then just all sort of roll it, roll it together and, and call it a major. So in that sense, it was really nice because I didn't have to just be, you know, playing scales all day or studying sort of theory or composition. I, I wasn't sort of, um, I wasn't hyper-focused on just one thing. It was really 
about many different sets of ideas, um, which, you know, again, I, I think that sort of helped me, um, you know, in terms of things that happened later in my career, branching off into different mediums in, in music. Now, it's funny, though, because, you know, you went to Brown, and I know you knew Lisa Loeb, and you knew and Tracy Ellis Ross, and, and you know, and they're, all of you are such talented people, and so many of us, though, think of Brown as an academia school that when you hear those people went there, it's surprising. Was there a lot of, you know, people who wanted to be artists and performers when you were there in your class? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, I, you know, of course, there's there's a side to Brown that is like engineering students and med students and um, and and there's a sort of a, a Euro trash side to Brown, you know, it's that there's, there, there are these little sort of um, universes at, uh, within the school, but there's definitely like, you know, there was a really intense theater scene there, which I wasn't really part of at that time, but um, a lot of cool kids came out of that. And, you know, there's myself, David Yazbek went to Brown, who's also a very, you know, as you know, very successful Broadway composer and, um, and Lisa, and I, you know, yeah, I think there were there there were definitely a fair number of uh, of artsy fartsy kids there, especially in the in the late eighties. You know, I, I I think it maybe changed a little later on, but um, at that time, um, it was a pretty arty place. So, so you get out of Brown. What's your at that point? What is going through your mind? What is your focus? Are you are you want to prefer? Uh, the music. I mean, what do you want to do? Because you got, you went to an Ivy League school, which you know that's that's yeah. that's a really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, if I <laughs> if I if I knew then what I know now, I I, I probably would have um, I would have done things very differently. But of course, um, that wouldn't have helped the cause. I mean, you know, I, it's I, I I went I went out to L.A. with a with a with a set of demos. Know, that sounded okay, but it wasn't anything to write home about, and I was really pretty unfocused, and and you know it wasn't really clear to me how how it was going to happen that I was going to get a publishing deal and a record deal, but you know, but I did, and uh, and you know, and I did. I once once that happened, I did start working really hard at writing and recording things. Um, so you know, call it call it what you want. You know, the universe. Taking, putting me in the right place at the right time or whatever you will, but, um, but that's how it happened, yeah. Now, did the deal come pretty easily? I mean, what was, you know, people have, some people have stories where they go, well, I was just unbelievable. The next thing you know, I had a record deal. Some people said, I was slugging along for 10 years and finally someone said, give this guy a shot. Yeah. What's your story behind your record deal? Yeah, I mean, I, it was, uh, it happened, um, it, it happened very quickly in in sort of in in three bits of slow motion. So like I you know I, I got I got signed to sort of a small indie label pretty quickly when I got to LA. But it was it wasn't a deal that really amounted to anything. I, but I, then I got a publishing deal with BMG, and and they were very helpful. And ultimately they were helpful in sort of putting me in front of the folks at Atlantic records. So within about two and a half years of being in LA, I, I'd finally gotten a deal with Atlantic. Um, and, and that, you know, and then after that, I went off to France to record that first record. So I don't know if you want to say that was a 
uh, uh, you know, happening fast or happening slow, but that's how it happened. Well, so you record the first album and, and you have a hit off it. So, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, as a young guy, it's your first album, you have a, a big hit. What kind of pressures do you feel? Do you, I mean, do you feel them right off the bat or are you just so swept up in the moment and then doing this and doing that? I mean, how do you handle it when you're a young guy with a hit on your first record? Yeah, I mean, basically, there was there was a lot to do, um, especially because I wasn't a um, I wasn't a practiced or natural performer. So, you know, I my first tour, I went out opening up for Jewel, and um, you know, I was playing relatively big places. You know, thousand, two thousand people a night. She had a she had a big hit record at the time, and um, and so, you know, it was kind of a trial by fire and I was just trying to get my act together as a performer, as a singer, you know, and I, and I, I really just, I, you know, frankly, wasn't very good at it. And I was really self-conscious. And so that that for that whole first album cycle was really about me, sort of, you know, um, playing a lot of shows and spending time behind the microphone trying to become more comfortable as a performer. You know, and of course, you know, there there was that side of it of like you know shooting music videos and doing press and being in magazines and there was you know a fair amount of new york city um shenanigans and partying that goes on along you know along with that process which is all fine but um but yeah i i, I my my memory of that time is like really trying to get my act together as a performer now do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio yeah i do um i i was i happened to be with my a and r person like you know in the car in la when barely breathing came on the radio so um that that was nice uh uh but again you know i, I had such a um a tricky relationship with being in a kind of top 40 context because all of the, the bands and artists that I had listened to growing up and that, that, that I even, you know, that I was a fan of at that time, they weren't top 40 artists at all. You know, I, you know, I was listening to Bjork and Radiohead and Jeff Buckley. Um, and, you know, I, I was sort of on, on the radio next to these other bands and artists that I didn't feel a lot of kinship with. So that was, that was all, there was always a sort of a disconnect. Now, when it comes time for your second album, how are you feeling? Are you feeling confident? Is is a label being a pain in the ass? I mean, what's it? What's going on for you? Yeah, I, I, I was feeling very confident and very, um, you know, very excited about it. And we actually went to Spain to make the second record, and um, you know, it was a really beautiful experience. Uh, and you know. Of course, you know, I just sold 700,000 copies and I had a Grammy nomination. And so, you know, you always think, well, we're just going to go from strength to strength. Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> in, you know, in between 1996 and 1999, the, the sort of the, the music business as a whole shifted really dramatically from what I would call sort of a mini era of acoustic alternative music being on the radio to a, a much longer era of like 
what I would call like super pop music being on the radio and you had Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. So you had this, uh, this whole movement of like, you know, in a way like really old school pop music happening. And, 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 I, you know, by the time my second record came out, it was like, I was in a totally different environment. So, um, you know, for better or worse, I kind of got my wish <laughs> of being like, <laughs> You know more alternative and not on the radio um because you know that that certainly didn't happen in the same way for humming now you're you know you're an accomplished musician and um when do you decide to become a composer because for me that's just i mean i have no musical talent so let me say that to start and picking up a guitar and singing a song seems hard to me but composing is just such a broader picture how did you how did you make that transition and why did you make that transition? Well, so, you know, I, I was really interested in the, in the sort of technology of making music from a young age. You know, as I said, I, I had a four track recorder when I was 14 and I, I was, you know, I had my first synthesizers when I was 12, 13 and, you know, drum machines and, and basically as a, you know, as a musician, um, I'm all, you know, I, I play pretty much anything that has frets or keys or that you hit. Uh, I don't play anything that you bow or you blow. That's that's sort of my, my motto. But but I do play a lot of instruments. So I was always experimenting with pretty broad sort of sonic palettes. And then, you know, when I, when I made my first couple records, um, I was working with really, with a really great producer, Rupert Hine, and, and a really great orchestrator named Simon Hale who came and did the string arrangements. He's really done that for all of my records and, and, and a lot of my theater projects as well. But, you know, I, I knew sort of, um, I knew how to put the pieces together for these things. And, and really, to be honest, writing music for, for theater, you know, as a composer, certainly the way I was doing it, it's just not a million miles away from writing pop songs. I mean, it, it happens to, it ends up existing in a different context and there's, it needs to serve a different set of, of functions. But, um, you know, a song, uh, you know, a song like, um, uh, uh, I Don't Do Sadness from Spring Awakening is, is really not very different at all from any of the songs that might've existed on any of my records. Now, how did you get into it? Did someone approach you? I mean, I mean, yeah, it's something. So, it, oh. sure. Yeah. So, uh, very long story short, um, I've been a practicing Buddhist since I was nineteen, and um, I met another Buddhist here in New York. This guy named Stephen Sater, who was a playwright, and we kind of we became fast friends, and uh, he asked me to write some music to a song lyric that he had in one of his plays, um, which I did. And then that, you know, that process, um, basically that began this process of Stephen sending me lyric after lyric after lyric after lyric. And that set of material became Phantom Moon. That became my none such record, my third album. And while, while I was recording that record, he gave, Stephen gave me a copy of like the Ted Hughes translation of Spring Awakening, which, you know, is this German play that was written in 1891. And he said, you know, read this play and I think we should adapt it as musical. And 
you know, I was like, oh, you know, Stephen, I hate musicals, you know, that was my first reaction, but, um, but I read the play, and I really liked the play, uh, and, and sort of an idea, you know, the light bulb went off above my head, where I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if, if you, if you wrote music, um, if you adapted this play as a musical and the music was kind of alternative rock, like actual authentically alternative rock, as opposed to some sort of like musical theater music dressed up as alternative rock, which I think was a lot of what you had seen and heard before. Um, so that, so that was sort of the idea. Um, and, you know, in the end, ultimately I think, spring awakening as a score it's it sort of exists it comes out of four different genres of music if you ask me one is folk music one is alternative rock one is really electronic music and one of them is 20th century classical music so those were sort of the big sort of four influences things that were going through my head when i was writing the score to that show but i think people think of it as alternative rock because of things like totally fucked and bitch of living and songs like that that are kind of like the marquee songs of the show but it's a pretty varied score now it opened off broadway are you still involved when it opens what's the composer's role in the play in the early days are you on set every night are you there yeah. or what is your job yeah certainly during you know you're there through the whole casting process, through the whole rehearsal process, through rehearsing the band and hiring the musicians and, you know, working together with the sound designer. And then during the whole preview process on Broadway, you know, shows go to Broadway and, and they'll, they'll run for, um, you know, eight or 10 weeks before they officially open. And during that time, you're making changes to the show. So you're there every day, all the time. Um, and frankly, you know, during that period, which was basically was exactly 14 years ago, it was, it was the winter of, of 2016, or yeah, 20, 20, oh, 2006 rather. Um, during that time, when the show was in previews, I remember, you know, we were in a 1100 seat Broadway house, and we had maybe two or 300 people a night coming to the show. And I mean, I was so naive about it at that time. I was like, well, that's great. Like 200 people are coming. <laughs> Meanwhile, the producers and everybody else were freaking out. Like this is going to be a total disaster. Um, but when opening night happened, um, we went to the, to the sort of after party and, and the reviews started coming in. And you just, I, I just remember seeing the party go from like sort of a dull hum to like really, really excited, happy people everywhere. And, you know, we, we got, we were like batting a thousand with the reviews from the New York times on down and, um, and the show really took off after that point. So it was a, it was a fun time for sure. Well, you won a Tony for that, uh, you, for yeah, that I show won too. <laughs> too, right. And then the play, the play won one too. So well, the, the play, the, the show actually won eight Tony awards. Okay. And, and I, yeah. Yeah. What was it like for you to get nominated for Tony? Because you you already had gotten nominated for a Grammy at a very yeah. young age. I mean, after your first album, what is it like to get nominated for a Tony when it's something that it, this career came out of somewhere out of nowhere? Somewhat, if you could say. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it was it was amazing, sort of manna from heaven, uh, getting nominated. And 
Look, I, I had I had very few expectations when I walked into Radio City that day. In fact, I was a little late. Like they have you do these interviews before you go in the room before the the, the, the uh, event starts, and I was sort of late getting through that line of interviews. And I literally sat down for maybe ten seconds before they said, you know, the winner for orchestrations is Duncan Cheek, and I had to just sort of jump out of my seat and run up there and. and get the award and 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 I, I had only written one speech but then of course we won another award so I had to go up again and I had to wing it and that was the second speech was the one that was televised and I'm sure I was completely inarticulate at that point but whatever so when you, you win the Tony and now that's you know the best you can do I mean in that in Broadway that's yeah. the, the grand prize now in your mind are you sitting there thinking I got to start working on a next play or are you still, are you thinking about your other music career? I mean, it's something that it's, it has to be, it's a great feeling, but also it has to give you, make it a little bit angsty. Well, okay. So it was a combination of things. In fact, Stephen and I had never stopped working on new projects. We were already well into writing two other shows. One of them was an adaptation of the Nightingale, the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. And one of them was a show about Nero, the, the emperor of Rome. Um, so, you know, we, we had a lot of things in development as Spring Awakening was becoming successful. So I knew I was going to keep doing this, you know, writing music for theater because by, by this point I had, you know, I had gone from thinking it was a terrible idea to knowing that it was actually a really good idea and really enjoying the process. Um, and then in terms of my own career, you know, I had very, um, I had very high hopes that, um, that this was going to kind of help, uh, help me find a new audience for my own records and, you know, kind of be a, a kick, a kickstart or a restart of my own career as a, as a, you know, singer songwriter performer myself, which it sort of was, but but in fact, um, you know, the, the two worlds of kind of musical theater aficionados and then people who buy, you know, rock records, you know, or art rock records or whatever you want to call it, those are two very different worlds and they don't really mix that much <laughs> to, this, to this day. Um, and, you know, that's okay. I, you know, I, I had hopes that, that, that the whole thing would sort of broaden. But, you know, I think... Um, with myself and I think you know people obviously Lin-Manuel with 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 Hamilton you know you kind of think oh this is going to bring like the hip-hop universe to Broadway and vice versa but it's still like the twain shall not meet you know? <laughs> now you also you, you wrote the music and lyrics for American Psycho which that's one of those I read the book that's I read the movie in fact I just told someone I would love to have my zoom background as Patrick Bateman's apartment. I think it would freak people out. Either people would get it or they wouldn't. Were you, were you a fan of the movie and the book or how did that all come about? I, you know, I was a fan of Brett Easton Ellis. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I don't, I had read American psycho when I was in college and it was, it was, and is a very disturbing book. Uh, and so I think I, I don't think I really got it when I read it initially. And it was only read when I read it again 
like it was 2009, I think, when when the idea um, was proposed to me. I had to read the book again, and then I sort of saw it as as a as a sort of a complicated satire and a sort of critique of late capitalism. Um, that you know, then then the book made a lot more sense to me and became a lot more interesting to me as as you know material um, on which to base a musical. Um, but it took it took a minute to sort of adjust my thinking about it in order for it to make sense. Was it easy to write? No, not at all. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I knew fairly. I knew right off the bat that I that, that the sort the sort of sonic palette that I that I wanted to use for the score, um, which was basically kind of electronic music that you might hear in a nightclub in New York City in the late '80s, um, and the sort of gear that comes along with that. Um, but then you know it was tricky to find the balance in in the in the lyrics. Um, to find a balance of sort of of, of darkness and, and and then satire and humor and, and sort of earnestness and sincerity um, and, and and sort of intellectual critique it was a weird set of things to try and balance and you know again I, you know look it's it's only it's up to the, the the theater goer and the audience as to how successful it was at doing that Um but uh, you know, I just hope that it it sort of has um, it has a another life. And part of me really wishes maybe that that we had waited another year to open the show because it would have been very different to open American Psycho during the Trump administration um, <laughs> than than it was to open it when he was still sort of a joke of a candidate. <laughs> no. How do you, how do you pick the projects? I know because you know you sat there, you did, you did because of Win Dixie, which sounds completely different than American Psycho. Yeah. I mean, is there something that do you get a lot of projects pitched to you, or I mean, how do you get these projects? Like because of Win Dixie, explain that. Well, <laughs> you know, the, again, I, it's the problem is I get these I get these pitches, and most of the time, my initial reaction is. There's no way I'm ever going to do this. And then I read the source material and my brain starts working and I'm like, oh, you know, this book is so charming. And like, oh, yeah, like I can totally picture this girl in the, you know, the panhandle of Florida in, you know, in the 80s, like, you know, with the feelings that she's feeling about this dog. And I sort of got into my own adolescence in South Carolina, you know, with my dog. And it was like, yeah, I can totally write this show. So, I mean, I've just, I, I end up, I end up being sort of a sucker for the material, and then that's, then I'm done, and I have to do it. Is it easy though? I mean, not easy, of course, because you know, is it easy to throw hats around? I mean, you know, from Win Dixie to American Psycho, two completely things, two different. Yeah, it's probably in two different completely mind frames, just yeah. because it's two different worlds. I mean, how do you get yourself prepared for that? Do you sit down and is it planned, or does something just? come to you and you go oh this is what i'm gonna write well again i mean i think my um my own you know I, it's i have very specific things that i like when i'm listening to music um so it's not you know 
it's not like I'm like a jazz fan or like a rock music fan or a classical music fan or you know a country music fan or or an electronic music fan. It's just like there are certain specific things in all of these genres that I really deeply love. And then there's a lot of it in all of these genres that I have no interest in whatsoever. So, um, so in a way, a lot of these projects become like exercises in genre for me. Um, and I'm trying to sort of mine the genre for the stuff that I really love about it. Um, and so, you know, like last year I did a show, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is, um, you know, uh, based on the Paul Mazursky movie from 1969, and that that movie and that that's the score for that show is this sort of like late 60s pop music pastiche. So that was like yet another set of musical material that I was drawing from, and and it, you know and I've done I've done the score for three different Brecht plays um, at CSC here in New York, and those were all sort of set in different kind of mid-century, mid-20th century environments. And that, that those became really interesting exercises in genres. So yeah, it's just sort of like I immerse myself in that, in that cultural world of wherever the show is coming from and then try and find the music in there that, that I respond to. Now, you know, you've, you've done well with live theater shows. What was it like when the country started shutting down did you, I mean, none of us thought it would go this long. I still remember that, you know, I actually, I went out to a restaurant for the first time. We sat outside my wife's birthday, September 3rd. It was the, September 2nd, I'm sorry. That was the first time I was out in a public restaurant, not shopping, since yeah. March. I remember I went out for a beer on St. Patty's, the day before St. Patty's Day. Yeah. And we didn't think it was long. And for me, though, it's like, you know, I've learned to work from home. I learned to do this from home. What is it like for you? I mean, the first initial reaction, did you just say, okay, you know what? It's just a sideline. And then how do you deal with that as it's going on? Well, okay. There were a couple, um, there are a couple things about it, uh, that, that were maybe a little bit different for me than other people. One is I, you know, I have a, a daughter who's about to turn two. So when this happened, she was just, oh, you know, she was 13, 14 months old. And, and with this, this, this thing of me sort of spending a lot of time in the apartment with my wife and my young daughter, is not such a terrible thing, you know, just to, you know, I'm, I, you know, had the pandemic not happened, um, I don't know if I would have spent as much time with her over the past eight or nine months. So that's one really good silver lining. The other thing is that a lot, I, you know, I was, I was feeling slightly kind of overwhelmed with um, a lot of different projects that were in development in various stages of development and, you know, projects that had been on stage that were going to maybe have a, a continuing life in a different theater or go to London or maybe go to Broadway. And there was just like a lot of stuff that was, that was maybe going to happen. And I was, there was a lot of pressure from all of them. Um, to kind of stay focused on them. And, and in a way, this sort of took the pressure completely off because we have no idea when any show is going to go to London or go to Broadway or, or anywhere. Um, and so I had 
So I ended up having like one sort of small set of homework that I had to do for one of these projects. And other than that, I've been able to just go to my studio and, and just write and record music and come up with musical ideas that have no, you know, where there's no expectation. They don't, they're not supposed to exist in any context for any show, for any record. It, you know, they might end up as the next Duncan Cheek record. They might end up as a song for somebody else. Who knows what, what they're going to be. But I was able to just sort of be in the studio and play, like play in the sense of like the way a child would just play with toys. Um, and that's been a really, really great. Like the stuff that, the material that's come out of that process, I'm very excited about. Um, and it's kind of, what's good about it is it's, it's so far, it's sort of art for art's sake, as opposed to it being, a, you know, a song that I'm trying to write for some imaginary audience. And just music that I'm writing totally selfishly for myself. And, and you know, counterintuitively, that tends to be the better work that I do. Now, though, the album that you're releasing December 4th, was that, were you planning to release it this at this time, or what, did, did COVID have something to do with that? Did it make it an easier process to get the album done and mixed and put all together? Well, the shows happened three years ago, so it's been mixed for a while, um, and, and I wasn't really in that much of a hurry to put it out, but, you know, after, I, I, as I was thinking about it, um, during, you know, during this pandemic process and, you know, realizing and knowing that not a lot of live music was happening. We don't know when it's going to start happening. So it seems like an interesting time to put out a live record because it's just, you know, I was going to subtitle it, you know, <laughs> a record of, a record of the time before, um, <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's like, this is the way we used to sort of go out and experience entertainment and we don't anymore. Now, as a writer, after the pandemic, lyrically and passionately, do things change? I just talked to someone who had written a song last year and it was a Christmas song, but they said they can't really bring it out. They're, they rewrote part of it because it's like, hey, we're going to this, we're going to that. As a writer, do you sit there and think about that or do you just sit there and say, it's it's music man it's you know it doesn't it, it doesn't have to depend on a pandemic yeah i mean i <laughs> yeah i'm 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 not i try not to be particularly topical when i write about things it's like you know when when 911 happened i think there were certain artists who kind of rushed to make their 911 album or something and people now have been like oh i'm going to make my pandemic album it's just not the way I operate, and I, just, I don't. I don't think I have, you know, when those things are happening, I don't have nearly enough perspective about them to write anything cogent about them. Um, so, so you know, I I, 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 I like to do things um, and write about things always, sort of at an angle, so to speak, um, and, and and that usually requires me being having some time away from it you know i mean in the case of these a lot of these theater pieces that i've written it's like you know when i'm writing about nero you know i've <laughs> i've had you know 19 centuries away from it <laughs> that's <laughs> but um but I, that's sort of what feels more comfortable for me 
Now, you had mentioned earlier that you're a Buddhist. How did that whole process happen? And, and you know, was it a, a defining moment that said, I want to change? I mean, I know I talk to people who are different, you know, religions and there's certain things that happen. How did you end up becoming a Buddhist? Well, um, short version is that I was studying Eastern religions generally my freshman year in college, um, Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, and I went out to Los Angeles that summer between my freshman and sophomore year and I ended up staying with a relative of mine who had been practicing Buddhist since the early 70s and I had a series of conversations with her and she kind of nudged me into beginning to practice the, the form of Buddhism that I practice is Nichiren Buddhism and, and you chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo so it's, it's a lot about chanting that mantra in the morning and in the evening for, you know, a certain period of time. And, uh, and I, you know, I sat down one morning with her and chanted really, I think probably for a couple of hours that first time. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I had an enlightenment experience or anything, but I, but I had enough of an experience and enough of a shift sort of in, in, in a, hopefulness for lack of a better word happiness for lack of a better word that i wanted to kind of continue to uh to experiment with it and see where it would take me and you know to be fair it's it, i i do credit it with taking me to some pretty great places now the career all started your first break was barely breathing what's your relationship with that song like do you sit there and it's one of those things you're gonna have to play when you do a show because people want to hear it and it's also such an your writing stage in the very beginning, how you've expanded so much into different angles. Do you still enjoy playing it, or or what is your feeling for it, and what has it been throughout the years? It, it can, you know, I sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I mean, for a long time before Spring Awakening happened, I I, I think I played it maybe a little bit more begrudgingly and and not you know particularly enjoying it just because I, I didn't want to have to hang my hat on one radio hit single. And I felt, you know, even, even in 2005, you know, at that point I had my fifth record had come out and I felt like my body of work was such that, you know, who cares about barely breathing? I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> I never had that, that terrible problem of having like 17 hit songs. So you always have to play those songs, you know, in your show. Um, you know, it's not, you know, it's like if you're Hall and Oates, you know, you've got like 19 major radio <laughs> songs. Those are what you have to play. You can't sort of, you can't like branch out and play your deep cuts, really. People get annoyed. Whereas, you know, I guess I'm, I'm lucky enough to have mostly just deep cuts. And so, you know, like, again, like if you go see Bjork play a show, she really just plays what's on her new record and maybe a few things that she feels like performing from other records but it's not like she's playing a string of hits same with radiohead you know same with a lot of the artists who i admire and and um and who i'm interested in so i just you know again it's of course i'm gonna for the most part play the song um but i i you know I, and i'll and sometimes i'll enjoy it sometimes i want but i don't sort of don't want to make too big a deal of it anymore well if you're driving and it comes on the radio do you turn 
I, it depends. Again, totally depends. Like sometimes, you know, I'm like, oh, how does it sound on this car radio? And then sometimes it's just like, no, I don't need to do this. You know, I've been in a Dwayne Reed where it's come on and I've been like, you know what? I, I don't really need these paper towels right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question. When you're, when you're driving, what are, what are one or two songs that no matter what, you will turn up the volume. Is there any songs that just hit you? Like for me, if I hear Paradise City I mean, by Guns N' Roses, I just want to turn it up. Free Falling, the same thing. It's just turn it up. Are there any songs when you're driving and you hear in the car that you say, I just, I got to crank this a little bit? Um, yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's, there's certain artists, you know, I've got this funny one that you, that you might be surprised by, but like, there's a lot of like Steve Miller songs that I, whenever they come on, <laughs> I'm really like psyched to hear those. Um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's some other stuff that, that comes to mind, you know, again, like I, I because of the nature of, of, of how we listen to music these days, um, a lot of times if I'm in the car, I'll, I'll have, you know, I'll be listening, frankly, to like audible sort of books on tape, but, or, or I might have Spotify on, but it's sort of like a cur- curated Spotify list. So, um, so it's, there's not as many surprises when I listen to music these days. Well, it's funny with Steve Miller, whenever you hear take the money and the run, take the money and run, you want to clap, you're driving and, yeah. and you, you want to clap. You're like, I got to yeah. clap. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, Fly like an eagle, or like even Abra, even late Steve Miller, Abracadabra. You know, I really like <laughs> something about it. I really like. So, what what are you looking to in your future? You know, when this all ends and we can get back and get back to live theater and playing live, you know, hopefully we'll get a we'll get a uh, vaccine soon and, and things will get back. To maybe a year from now, maybe people will actually be back in full force. What what are your what are you looking to do, or are you just going to let things ride out and know that you can just, as you said, create in your, in your studio? It's like you're playing with toys. Um. So. Um. You know, as I said, I've been working on this new set of material that will eventually turn into a, a new Duncan Cheek record. So, you know, in some ways, I, I'm. I'm just, I'm going to continue what I've always done, which is like make, make solo albums. Um, and, you know, to what degree, you know, I, you know, one of the things that I'm sort of excited about is finding, is finding different ways of, 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 um, of kind of putting those records out there. That's not just, not just touring, but even, you know, and even sort of more, um, uh, sort of more interesting ways of making music videos or content specifically for YouTube or specifically for online. Um, you know, that, that's, that's something that I'm thinking about now. And I think that's a lot, in a way, a lot of theater is, and is going to migrate. Um, it's going to migrate to, to other sort of platforms. Um, you see it happening already and not just zoom and, but, you know, or, and maybe some things are going to be sort of like pay-per-view events and things like that. But um, you'll just see the, I think you're going to see, you know, making TV or making movies or making theater or making music, they're going to kind of like all sort of mesh together in, in all these different interesting combinations. And, and uh, it's, you know, it's starting to cohere in my head, um, 
you know, how, how I might contribute to that process. But it's in the very beginning of, you know, these are very nascent ideas. But you have the ideas, and that counts. Where do you keep your Tonys? Where are they? Well, right now they're in storage. <laughs> I have a recording studio up in Garrison, and they're sort of in storage up there. I have the Grammy in my bedroom here in the city, but, um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't like to, you know, keep the hardware in the living room, you know, like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Duncan, I want to thank you for uh, coming on today, and I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you're surviving somewhat. It's been a crazy, weird time. I know my brother lives in Manhattan, and he, he sold his country house, and he's back in Manhattan. He's on, he's on 55th and 6th, and uh, he is just, he's like, I'm not leaving. He goes, you know, I've been here, you know, I've been here for years. He goes, I'm not going anywhere. So Yeah, and yeah I'm pretty diehard New Yorker myself, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick it out. It's a, great, it's a great place. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, it's the best. So I know you tweet, uh, you're, you're at Duncan Sheik on Twitter, right? Yes, or the Duncan Sheik, I think it is. Yeah. Are you on Instagram at all? I am, yes. Same at the Duncan Sheik or Duncan Sheik? Yeah, the, it's the Duncan Sheik. Yeah. Okay, so people, go follow him, go listen to his music, go buy his music, and, you know, go listen, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk, Instagram at Cooper Talk One. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 820 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget to eat your fruits and vegetables, drink your water, and take your vitamins. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests, and I'll talk to you guys next time.